The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to me on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday, 10 to 11, Eastern Time, live, and then at the end of the day, we archive the show, and you can download the show and listen to it as an MP3. This morning, I have two guests. My first guest is Paul Hill. He's the author of The Panic-Free Job Search, and as you would Yes, uh, he is a job search expert, and uh, we're going to talk about ending this cycle of job search rejection, and instead he's going to tell us how to be irresistible to employers. So this is timely. This is what we need to know now, considering the uh, employment rate in this country. But uh, my second guest is Annette Benal, and her new book is Kids Beyond Limits, the Annette Benal Method of Awakening the Brain and Transforming the Life of Your Child with Special Needs. So, my first guest is here with us, Paul Hill. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Job search expert. Well, right now, I think everybody wants to hear about a job search expert because we keep hearing all, you know, unemployment rates, people are terrified, uh, afraid of rejection, afraid of applying for a job, they don't know what to do. So, what, what, how do you be, I mean, you're so positive, obviously, in your book and what you do, and you say that you can teach us how to have financial security and never worry about a job or never panic about a job? That's correct. Well, the first thing we all have to understand is what I call the front end of job search, which is really the person, the mind, and the body. And if we are not in the right space, then it's really difficult to go and get what you want in life. And no matter what it is, be it any particular job, the big dichotomy when it comes to job search is that this, that most people are at the most vulnerable, but yet you have to be your most desirable. And how do you get there? That's the big problem. Most people jump right into the tactical part of job search. In other words, the mechanics of finding work. And the first thing they run into is, oh, I got to create a resume and I got to go there and do all that kind of stuff. That's not going to work unless you deal with your headspace your confidence, the way you look, the way you feel, all of that. So in my book, I talk a lot about alignment, taming the inner beast. And especially if you've been in a job for a long time and you get laid off or you get fired, there's always self-doubt. And no matter, this book as well, or if, you, if you're in a job right now and you want to go for something better, again, oftentimes there's self-doubt. How do you get through that? Well, first of all, you have to deal with your mind. And one of the things I truly believe in is to look at athletes. How do athletes do it? They do it through visualization. They do it through using different techniques to get you confident, to get you to move forward, to get you to step up and do things. Because if you're not confident and you're not committed, in other words, if you don't know exactly what you want, how can you go and get it? So that how do you can part. I just stop you there, yes. Paul? Because how I want to ask how? And I think the athlete is a good example. But how does the average person transition from you're fired and now you have to find another job and you have to find it quickly or as quickly as you can because you have to pay your bills and take care of your family. How do you transition so quickly from, you know, really feeling awful about yourself to the fact that you got fired, maybe even if it's a surprise, to feeling good about yourself and, you know, uplifting and, you know, give us an example. How does that work? Well, one of the things is there's never anything quick, number one, when it comes to job search, unless you're just going for a job, okay? There's a difference between a career job and a job. So the first thing is I don't want you to be in a job search, number one. So if you're actually working now before you get fired, I want you to start managing your career. That's what I want you to do. But if you are in that situation, one of the things that I do offer 
is in the book, I talk a lot about guided meditations. I've trained with some of the best, the greatest motivators like Tony Robbins, T.R. Becker, and all of them. And I've been on stage with these guys as well. And I've been exposed to what they do. And basically their message is feel good about yourself, tell yourself some good stuff, and good things are going to happen. And unfortunately, that lasts for a very short amount of time. When it comes to when you're laid off like that and you've got to get and you're panicking and you're in a, in a really tough situation, number one is you're not sleeping well. You're not eating well. All these, these things are happening to you, your mind, and your body. And one of the things that I recommend is guided meditation. And in, in the book, I take you through that process and I show you where you can get these particular MP3s. And they've been outstanding with my clients. They rave about them. Uh, these have been proven. The Yale University did a study on it. So did Stanford did a study on, on guided meditations using binaural beats and hemispheric synchronization, it's called. And basically what I get people to do is to spend a half an hour at night listening to an MP3 as they fall asleep. And it's had some incredible changes to the mind. And it's all about what we focus on. That's what I truly believe is where you're, where you're going to head. And if you're looking at oh my gosh, you know, I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to do that. There's no jobs out there. It's the story that you're telling yourself. You know, and I'll give you a perfect example. Look at Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who would ever think that, you know, somebody like him would end up being the governor of California? And let's just think about it. One of the things that I talk about in my book is exactly him and how he came to do that through visualization, through doing different things. And it's all about controlling your mind at first. If you can control your mind, you can go and do whatever you want. And I think that's a really, it's really important. I mean, I think that's why your book is important, because people don't do that. They kind of think that is, is something that's secondary to do the, the exactly. kind of, yeah, and that's really the first thing that you need to do so that you can do the other practical step-by-step stuff that needs to be done to get a job. Right. Because if you don't feel good, how can you pick up the phone and make a telephone call? If you're tired and you haven't slept all night, how are you going to sound on the phone? There's just no energy there. I see it. I've been seeing it for 26 years. And this is what happens. We've got to get people back into sleeping, feeling good. Once you're feeling good about yourself, there's very little. I truly believe, and when I when I interview people and I ask them, what's the, what's the thing that stops you? They tell me fear. And I say to them, well, what is the fear? They say, well, I don't feel like it. I just don't feel good. I feel like I, you know, I start the night before. I say to myself, oh, gosh, this is the day. I'm going to do networking. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm ready to go. I got my, and then they, they say, I wake up and I don't feel like doing it. So how do we get you into that feeling state? And that's so critical. And like I said, that's the part everybody glosses over. The next part is understanding what you want. Then people understand if they knew what they want, then they don't know how to get it. And that's a big, big problem today because job search has changed so much from the olden days, from when I graduated, when you just took a, you know, uh, an envelope, you stuck your resume in it, put a stamp on it, and you sent it out, right? Yes. Uh, but things have changed a lot today. And people have to understand what to do in that particular aspect. And then the next part beyond that is even if they do know what to do, oftentimes they won't take the steps to go and get it. So it's the actual actionable step as well. And that's what I try and push people to do is to follow through, to commit. And what I call burn the boat decisions. It's like, you know, metaphorically speaking, if you're going to go and get a job, if you really want to go and get that, you can do it. But you have to make a burn the boat decision, meaning think about taking a boat from the mainland, going to an island. When you get to the island, burn that boat. You know, make that decision to follow through no matter what. And follow the tactics in, in the book, and they'll get you there. Well, the title of the book, The Panic-Free Job Search, Unleash the Power of the Web and Social Networking to Get Hired. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a whole, and you just mentioned that, because um, that's a whole new area when you're, right. well, obviously, if, let, let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, right. you have to do that, don't you, if you want to get a, yes. yeah, a job? Yes, yes. but... But not the way that most people think today. And the way most people think is that they go online and they search for jobs. Job search is not about finding jobs. It's about finding people. Getting hired is about getting in front of a person. It's about making a connection with a person. And if I can get you to be a candidate without being an applicant first, that's the whole goal. 
and just explain that a little bit. An applicant is somebody that goes in, cap in hand, begging to get a job. In other words, they put their, their little thing on the Internet, and they send it off, or what I call clicking and sending the resume. Whereas a candidate, it's somebody that walks in, and there's already an interest in you. And how do you get to that point? Well, that's what it's all about. It's using the Internet and social networking to gather intelligence, to set up things. Instead of, you know, one of the things, one of the great job aggregators is a, is a, a site called Indeed.com. That takes all the jobs that are out there on the Internet and brings them all into one space. And if you use their advanced search uh, capabilities, you can have the right job sent into your inbox. Now, most people would take those jobs that are sent into their inbox, and they'll send their resume based on what they tell them to do in this particular uh, job description. What I tell you is get the intelligence off these job descriptions, find the decision maker, which I show you how to do, and contact the decision maker directly, because it's about people. In every touch that you can create, and a touch, what we call a touch in sales is actually, I'm a headhunter. That's what I grew up on, and that's a sales job, and that's how we promote people. And a touch is actually touching somebody, talking to them, sending them an email, or a mail, or actually mail. And today, mail mail really works, by the way. It does work, because I've had people people ask that, does it work? It really does work. They say, you know. Yes, snail mail. Snail mail. Emails people are just not looking at. VPs are just not looking at them. They're just throwing them away. They're just clicking off. But when they get mail, there's something about mail. When we ask them, do you open your mail? They say, yeah, we do. What do you do with a piece of paper? It's hard to get rid of. It's not the same, right? I mean, if you get a letter, what we, what, what I recommend, and uh, you know, it's, it's taking, it's not directly in the book. There's like, there's only so much I can put in the book, but certainly in my resources, it's there. Where I talk about creating marketing letters instead of sending your resume, but just a quick letter that you send to decision makers. You bypass HR, you bypass those other areas, and of course, it's not going to work with every company. Okay, let's just make this clear. I'm not saying that this is magic. Obviously, with some institutions, some universities, some areas like this, eventually you will have to go through the HR pipeline some way. But if you can alert the decision maker that you're going to... But how do you know, Paul, which ones where it works and which, you know, like you say, okay, you're going to have to go through HR or you're not. Is there any way to kind of know which ones, or is it just kind of hit or miss? Well, I always say just go to the decision maker no matter what. Yeah. Right, I mean, that's where you want to start. And like I said, a, a decision-maker will, will, at least you've made the touch, and they'll know to look for your resume if you've impressed them. And you have to know, they might say to you, look, they might cut off my hands. If I accept your resume, you've got to send it through the HR channel. Right? But then they know they're looking for it. At least you've got that going for you. Or they can request it, even. And that's a big thing. Even, even as headhunters, Oftentimes, it's one of the reasons I got out of the business, quite frankly, because of that, because of the fact that there's too many rules involved and how HR is really bogging down the whole process for a lot of people that are just trying to get in front of individuals. Managers are frustrated because they're not getting the right people either. You know, today, jobs are really complex. And the problem is a resume doesn't give all the answers, nor does a job description. You still need that human contact. And if you can get there or be recommended by somebody, it's like, let's, let's think about it this way, Catherine. If you think about a triangle, at the top of the triangle, think about an ad for a job. Okay? And at the bottom, think about a decision maker. How do they build the job? So it's a triangle. The base is manager. Well, when they've got a job, the first thing they do is they look around. They say, hey, who do I have in my department that can fill this job that I can promote? Okay, I don't have anybody. Who can I steal from, uh, from Jim over here? Oh, Jim caught me. I can't do that. He won't let me do it. Who do I know? Let me look on my, my website. Let's talk to my employees. Who do they know? Right? That's how they fill a job. Then afterwards, they say, okay, well, I can't find anybody there. Let me look at my associations. Who's in our association that we can go and pull off of? Then they'll turn to HR and say, hey, HR, can you, can you find somebody for us? So what's HR going to do? Well, they're going to go and put it up on uh, you know, in an ad. Also, they might go to a job fair or that kind of thing. And think about it. That's where most candidates or most applicants come in is there instead of at the bottom of the base. I want you to come in at the base. So 
so that you get into what we call the true hidden job market. You get into the minds of the decision makers so that when there is a job that's available, they know who to call. I think there's another piece of this. When you have a connectedness to someone, and I know when I'm hiring people that I kind of, I need that connectedness you mentioned, the human connection, because there's a certain level of trust. And as somebody who is hiring another person, there is just some instinctual stuff that comes out if you just have some kind of personal contact. Very, for me anyway. And I, I, so it really, you're absolutely right. You need, yeah. Well, uh, let's give it. I'll give you the answer to that right now. The first thing is they've got to get to. They got to like you. They got to get to know you. And the final one is the one you said. They have to trust you, right? Yeah. So if you, can, if you can, if you can get past some of these right off the bat, which is the like part, you might not be able to get across right away. But first of all, they might get to know you, and because they've met you, have heard of you once. They already, they're, they're trusting you a little bit better right away because they had a chance to, uh, you know, speak to you or see something or see some kind of contact, and if you've been referred over by somebody, wow, there's the trust factor done. It's in the bag, right? Because it typically, if it's somebody that they, that they respect, the interview really doesn't take place anymore. There's not much of an interview in a lot of cases. It's, okay, you can do the job. Jim said you're great. Wow, this is great. I got my person. And that's what it's all about here. That's what I'm trying to teach people is we're talking about, okay, the, the, the part about never, ever having to look for another job again. Remember you brought that up at the beginning. Well, that's what it's all about. It's creating your profile online. Once you're employed, it's about promoting yourself continuously and building those networks online to promote yourself as a professional. Or, and it doesn't matter. You can be an electrician. Today, when you get online and you really promote yourself, you're opening yourself up to the world. And, you know, I've done this with electricians here in Canada that got laid off in Calgary, and they were offered jobs in Kuwait. You know, and they would have never been found unless they jumped onto LinkedIn and they followed our advice, which was to promote themselves. It's the same thing today. You've got so many opportunities. They're not just full-time anymore. We've got all of them. And, and, and as we're seeing more and more, it, they're project-based jobs. The jobs are complex. The jobs are looking for these specialists that come in and move out very quickly, and especially in the technology fields today. And, you know, there's, there's, there's sites like Elance and Guru.com and all these different places where people can compete. Yes, you know, everybody's talking about, oh, offshoring and all the rest of it. But, no, there's a lot of inshoring going on, and I know because I do it. You know, I get all my staff, or not all of it except for one person, but most of it in, in uh, India, Georgia, Barrie, Ontario, and we have well, one person in Russia that does work for us. So that's what's available today. So it's, you're it's, talking it's, about, as you describe it, a world of employers, and it's really, that's true. Literally, there, is, there are a world of employers for you if you take advantage of it, if you are looking, when you are looking for a job. Right, exactly. The, the whole idea is I want you to do it while you're employed. Okay? Because the whole idea is for you to manage your career. Your employers will not manage your career anymore today. They're not going to do it. It's not like the old days. In the old days when my parents grew up, you know, they'd, they'd take you and they, you know, you'd, you'd go through your, your life. They'd push you through the, the, the process. Today, it doesn't matter. Today, they say, hey, we've got to bring down costs. We don't care how long these people have been here. Just get rid of the bloody people. Right? They're gone. Toss them out. 10,000 people gone. That's not a career. There's no career planning anymore for them. So it's up to you to take charge of your career. You have to promote yourself continuously and be looking and planning and saying, hey, I'm not going to wait two and a half years so I can get back into the cycle of being laid off and looking for another job. No way. I'm going to promote myself. And if I get somebody who comes to me with an opportunity in, a, in a, you know, 18 months and it fits my criteria, boom, I'm gone. What about and the different generations, the Paul? Because they have different expectations. Because they have different expectations for jobs. And I think this has really changed over the years. The, like the millennials, for instance, and maybe even the Generation X. They don't expect to stay at, at any one job anyway for more than two or three years. I mean, their expectation is that they are going to go on. So I guess it's even more important for them to manage their careers and decide where they want to go in two or three years because they don't stay around for the gold watcher. I mean, that's really passe. But, you know, so that's a different way of approaching your job too, isn't it? 
Yeah, but yes, it is. But even, I'm 50 years old, but even in my group, when we look at, you know, the group of baby boomers at the end of the baby boomers, and even the baby boomers that are up there, and if you look at the statistics that are coming out of the U.S. up to April, and that's all I have, there was over 5 million people quit their jobs voluntarily. Why? Why are 5 million people quitting their jobs? Like you said, you know, are they all Generation Xers? I don't know, but I don't think so. I think it's people that are finally realizing, hey, I want more out of this. I want to be in control. I'm sick of working nine to five and, and being recycled. And this is the, one of the things. I'm part of a group called Happen. It's a big network here in Canada of executives. And the biggest the complaint, and I never knew this, it, it never dawned on me really, it was people were so depressed because of not looking for work necessarily, but the cycle. Of the work. In other words, that they have a best before date on their foreheads of about two years in the senior levels today. And so for them, it's really not so much like, hey, I don't hate doing job search. I just hate being in this position all the time. And so when we preempt them and we say to them, look, why are you letting this happen? Don't you think you could take some, you know, some, some uh, proactive steps and think about, and that's what it's all about. It's about proactivity today with your career, being proactive, attracting opportunity, and, you know, the loyalty part, ooh, you know, I grew up with it. I'm sure you did as well. It was hammered into our heads. But really, is it there? Is it there from the employers? Are they prepared to sign a piece of paper that says, hey, we're going to keep you for 12 years here? No, they're not. So, you know, we have to shift our, we have to shift the things into more of a centered knee and taking care of your career. Yeah, I think that's really important to bring up that word loyalty. I don't think there's loyalty on either side. It's, yeah. it's, it's very different. Or loyalty takes on a different meaning. Maybe it's only for the two years you're going to be there. But, yes, right. you're right. So it really is important to be proactive. Uh, from the very beginning, I guess, I mean, connected and managing, and there's kind of these key buzzwords that you mentioned, but they're really important. And uh, I guess if you don't do it, then you just wind up what? I mean, you, you wind up not being able to maybe even make a good choice about the next. You just end up not in a career but in a a job just for the sake of maybe you get a job or something but really something you don't want and maybe below your skill levels. And uh, not a lot of good stuff happens if you don't plan for it. Right. You nailed it. That's exactly what it is. You end up settling for what's available rather than what you want. And that's the biggest thing that people, and you talked about that panic situation that somebody's in, they get fired and boom. And you know what we find is that that person typically will go out and accept a job. And within six months, will either get fired or quit that job, especially if they've been in a long-term career job previously. And that's what we find over and over again, that that's what happened. Why? Because they haven't, they just, they're just panicking. They're just grabbing whatever. And they realize, and the other thing, too, is they're looking for what they lost. And oftentimes it's not available to you anymore. And you have to sit back and figure out, who are you today? You know, you've changed, you know, from the time that you were, uh, when you first started 12 years ago to now, your skills, your knowledge, your style has changed. You know, some of your, your interests may have changed as well. And getting yourself up to do the same job again might not be in you. But yet you're struggling to find that. And sometimes you just got to sit back and say, is this really what I want to do right now? And, you know, one of the things, you know, people talk about passion so much, and I talk about it in my book as well, but I take it at a different level. I say to you, look, passion is, excuse me, C-R-A-P, crap, unless you have the skills, the knowledge, and the style to pull it off. In other words, I'm five foot one. You know, I, I love football. I want to be a quarterback for, you know, I don't know, San Francisco 49ers. Well, it's not going to happen, right? Because I just don't have the skills, the knowledge, and style to pull it off. You know, so passion by itself is not enough. You have to have those other parts to it. And when you figure out really who you are, I call it your sustainable competitive advantage. And that includes your competence and what I call your passion, yes, which is your interests and your driving forces together is your passion and your competence is your skills, knowledge, and style. And that is absolutely key. And I'm going to say it in one word, which is awareness, but we only have about 30 seconds left, so we... 
and instead of we we can't talk about it anymore, but listeners can go and get the book online, bookstores everywhere. The Panic Free Job Search, and the author of that book is Paul Hill. We've been talking to him this morning. Lots of good advice. Some of them we've given. I think you've really given us a great overview of the book, but obviously there's lots more. So thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Well, we have to take a short break, but coming up next is Annette Bennell, and she has a new book called Kids Beyond Limits, uh, the Annette Bennell Method for Awakening the Brain and Transforming the Life of Your Child with Special Needs. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. When you look at something that's been designed, whether it's clothing, architecture, or a work of art, do you stop and wonder about the inspiration and thought process that went into the design? Tune in to Dishing the Dirt on Design with hosts Ann Asher and Eleanor Schrader-Shapa. We'll take the mystery out of the creation process, along with revealing the backstory from art to fashion to travel and so much more. Listen to Dishing the Dirt on Design every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesdays, 10 to 11, live. And at the end of the day, as you know, we archive it, and you can download the show and listen on an MP3. Well, my next guest, and she's been on the show before, but this is, uh, she's written a new book, Annette Banyel, and her new book is called Kids Beyond Limits, the Annette Banyel Method for Awakening the Brain and Transforming the Life of Your Child with Special Needs. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Annette. Great being back on your show, Catherine. Yes, this is this is quite a book because this all has to do with, and this is a topic that I've had a few guests talking about. This is like the topic, I think, uh, neuroplasticity, you know, the ability for the brain to actually change because I think most of us have always thought that, well, your brain, you know, once you've, you've got a certain brain capacity and that's it and it doesn't change over the years, but that's not true. And you are specifically, I guess, talk about that in relation to kids who have uh, special needs, or and, and I'm not going to say disabilities because I know you like to talk about abilities rather than disabilities. So, yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> Let's uh, describe. You know, first of all, why did you write the book? Um, I know you've had a lot of experience with uh, working with children with autism and ADD and cerebral palsy and other developmental disorders. So, um, I would assume the book comes from your work with them. Yeah, well, Catherine, I wrote the book because uh, I, I've, I feel an enormous uh, push from inside and pull from the outside to inform people, parents and professionals, um, teachers, uh, therapists, uh, doctors that uh, work with these kids and influence their lives about possibilities for them to have uh, breakthroughs and have a trajectory of uh, recovery that a lot of times they don't accomplish uh, because some of what I know and some other people know is simply not in the mainstream yet. 
and I am very driven to impart the information and the experience I have for that reason, for the lives of the kids and the lives of their parents and families. Well, you're, and you have nine steps to help these children face their challenges, which, and they have a lot of challenges. And, and it is, it's new and it's innovative and, uh, it's your special method. And let's get real specific about that because you can help these, and I don't know if we want to take it by, you know, specific disorders, but, uh, or just in general, but there are very specific things that you do to help these children harness their brain capacity so that it, they, you call it, you know, heal, the brain will heal itself and, and you get, you've had some incredible results. So let's talk about the, you know, the process and how you do that. Yeah, I, I, w- I would love to do that and we can, you know, we can focus on specific conditions. I can give examples and then focus on the essentials, the nine essentials. But I, you've said it already twice and I think it's really good and important. And you're talking about brain capacity. So when a child has special needs, be it autism, and let's say they are, you know, they just uh, flail their arms and they don't talk and they don't look you in the eye, uh, or if a child has cerebral palsy, you know, or had stroke, it ends up looking like cerebral palsy, and they can't move, they can't sit, they can't stand, or any, <clears throat> sorry, any other uh, cause for their, uh, you know, situation at present, there's a tendency to feel, I think, even just like unconsciously, that their brains can't do what healthy children's brains can do. And so if people even are thinking about their brain, then the assumption is that their brains are kind of like inferior in their capacity. And there is no question that the limitations and the challenges these kids have are very, very real. And many times the causes are known, like brain damage at birth or whatever it may be, and that is also very real. And the fact that the brain is affected is also very real. But what I've discovered over the years is that the brain is such an organ, such an, an organism that it can increase its own capacity to perform. When it gets the information, when it gets what it needs, and that's what my method does. So uh, the, the, these kids, for the most part, under the right conditions, show us that they have brilliant brains that find solutions to their real limitations in ways that we couldn't have planned for or imagined ourselves. And one of the things that you say is, and, and um, that's really well said, but we as maybe therapists or as parents who are working with these children uh, want to fix things. Like the word fix comes up. It's connecting with them as people and connecting with their brains, each unique individual kids, not trying to fix it as if it's something bad, but connecting, which is much more positive. So talk to us about what does that mean, connecting? Okay, so first of all, I'll start with the fixing. Fixing is trying to get the child to do something that they are unable to do or are not able to do well. So, so getting the, you know, trying to sit the child over and over again or trying to make the child speak or say certain words. And, and my response to that, since I'm thinking of it all the time from the point of view of the brain and the brain getting enough new connections and enough information from which to form the scale, right? It, it is something that's proactively formed. When we try to fix a child, uh, I say, if he could, he would. If she could, she would. So if a child is not doing something, it's not because they're lazy or because they, their brain is necessarily bad or anything. It's just because they don't, their brains, and, and, and in their own inner feeling of themselves, an image of themselves, they just don't have access to it. So, and the problem with fixing is that it's not neutral. That means that the brain always forms patterns based on its experience. So if a child over and over again tries, let's say, to grab something with a hand that is spastic and they fail, they very quickly learn how to do, that's what they do. Every time they intend to catch something, they will recreate the failed outcome. So it's not just that it doesn't work well, it also can create limitations that we don't intend to build into the system. So that's the fixing part. So I say if he could, he would. If she could, she would. Connecting, and this is what the essentials 
each of the essentials provide us, really what we do is we interact with the child in such a way that we facilitate for the child to connect to themselves and for to feel themselves, to notice what's going on, to have gentle new experiences from which their brain can get the new information it needs to progress to the next step, to the next level. And just one thing to add to the connecting, human brains grow in a community of brains, and the connection is absolutely essential to the health and to the learning process and to the, for any one of us, also adults, but certainly the little ones, to thrive. Give us and, an example. Give us a specific example. You gave us an example of what, when if a parent is trying to fix, you know, telling a child to 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 pick up something they can't do and continue to tell it, it becomes the same repetitive thing that they can't do and they continue to do that. Okay, so if you ask, if you're connecting with the child, having help helping them to connect with themselves, specifically what are you doing in that situation, the child who can't okay. hold the ball or who can't hold the pencil? Or... Yeah, yeah. So the, fir- the first thing that I do is I don't ask them to hold the ball or a pencil because I can't do it and I know what's going to happen, right? Right. But what I do is the first thing I do is I employ the first essential, and the first essential is movement with attention. So either I move the child or if the child moves themselves, I have them do it or I do it with them in such a way that I, they, I see that they pay attention to themselves as they move to what they feel. And I'll elaborate in a second, but I just want to say that there is wonderful research done by Dr. Merzenich and his colleagues that shows that movement done without attention does not create, it does not promote the creation of new connections in the brain. Movement is done with attention, and again, attention to the self, to what I feel or what the child feels, right? So the child needs to be absorbed in the sensations that they feel as they move. And, and when we do that, the brain, on the average, is estimated creates 1.8 million new connections per second. It's about 100 million a minute. So, you know, if you watch any of my YouTube videos, even just online, you'll see that there are some changes that are just like so dramatic. I'll actually give you an example from, and it's also online, the name of the child is Jonathan, so people can see it. But little Jonathan, I saw him the first time 20 months, 20, 22 months, I don't remember, old, and he was just diagnosed with autism. And he never looked in anybody's eyes. He did not respond to language. He did not speak and, and you know, did not eat. It was very hard to feed him. A lot of the typical symptoms of children on the autism spectrum. And he also had this uh, repetitive, pretty violent movement of arching his back and throwing his head back again and again, like a, you know, like a broken loop. And, and, I had him sit in the father's lap. I didn't try to stop, have him stop doing, but what I did is I touched him in such a way and I started moving him, you know, first his pelvis, then I, his foot. And you could see I do it very slow. I, in my words, I say to him whenever he arches, I say, oh, you're, you know, you're touching daddy with your head or whatever. I spoke in Hebrew because the kid is, uh, the family is from Israel. And, and, uh, Within minutes, really, it's amazing. First of all, he stops throwing his head hardly at all back anymore. That means the whole brain calms down. I go with his system. That means I don't try to make him do something he can't do, but I get him, I touch his foot, and all of a sudden he realizes that his foot is being touched. And he looks at his foot, and then he looks to the side, then he looks at the foot again, then he looks at me because he realizes that I'm the one that's moving his foot. Then he looks at it again, and then he smiles and looks me in the eye for at least 10, 15 seconds. And that's within minutes, because all of a sudden he could make sense of his world because he was guided. I moved him, but I did it in such a way, slowly and deliberately, and not countering what he was doing, so he started feeling what was going on. So whatever the cause of autism is, which I certainly don't know, and people debate what it might be, I know that when those kids 
actually start feeling themselves and what's going on with them, they start transforming at an incredibly rapid rate. The same thing would happen with a child that can't hold something with a hand, but I won't go to the hand first. I would go more to the back and the arm where it's, it's less, there's been less failure and it requires less, you know, differentiation, less skill. And once the child starts feeling that, the hand would spontaneously get more relaxed. And then the child, you know, and then I won't have him catch anything. I'm just have them touch and feel things a little bit, their hair, their mommy's hair, and then I'll pull back. And all of these kids use their hands with us. I mean, they do. Some of them start within a few minutes. Some it takes a few weeks or sometimes even a few months. But all of them, pretty much, not every, every child, that would be an exaggeration, but the majority of the children end up using their hands. As you're talking, and I'm thinking about my own kids who didn't have disabilities, but when they would have temper tantrums, you know, if you're, when a, you know, a toddler, for instance, or even a three or four year old, and they're having a tantrum, if you start telling them to stop and don't do that and try and, you know, you just raise the bar, whereas if you're holding them and touching them and that sort of calming them down, it has the same effect. I mean, you, you, and they begin to relax and to relate. Um, and, and, and that's, it's sort of, I'm relating it to that. And, um, and it's perfect. It's yeah. perfect, Catherine, because, you see, if you think of it from the point of view of the brain, a temper tantrum is a, kind of like a, an explosion and a regression. I mean, whether it's a child or an adult, when we have a temper tantrum, we're good for nothing, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can't think, we can't ride the tricycle. I mean, we can't do anything organized and specific and refined. And a two-year-old, you know, it's just, we know it's a phase, but one of the things, you know, even to just look at them and say, oh, my God, you are on the floor. And you are hitting your legs. Does that feel good or do your feet hurt a little bit? And you pull them to pay attention to their movement, not from the point of view of exercise, but to what they feel as they move. They don't even have to know how they're moving or what movement they're doing, but they just need to feel themselves as they move. And I don't know many kids who don't just calm down from that unless something really something else is going on. You know, they're terrified by something or they're in pain. Then it's different. You talk about, we've been talking about, a, you know, moving movement with attention, and, and, and there are nine steps to this whole, you know, to your, to your program. Um, and, and the next, slow, variation, these are words that you use in the program, subtlety, enthusiasm. What's this kind of... Now, let's go through them quickly, maybe. Because, yeah. So, so people have a sense. So... All the essentials, their purpose basically is one purpose, and that is to help the child or the person and the brain to perceive differences. Because uh, I see, I understand the brain to be an information system, and the source of information is the perception of differences. So as long as something looks exactly like something else, I mean, if I don't see the difference between red and green, I don't see red and I don't see green, right? Right. Everything is like gray, maybe shades of gray, right? Uh, so the same thing is with everything. The source of information for children is perception of differences. So children on the autism spectrum, in the areas that they have trouble, they don't perceive differences, even though it looks like they should. So if you take the little uh, Jonathan I talked about, he, he was already even walking, but he wasn't quite clear his foot was his foot. You know, it wasn't really clearly differentiated anyway, had a hard time feeling his own body. Uh, children with spasticity, uh, you know, uh, stroke or whatever, the muscles are very tight. They can't feel, they don't move and they don't, and it's so intense that they can't feel fine differences. That means the brain is starving for information. Every one of the essentials is geared to flood the brain with new information that it can use to create the new skill, just like it does with healthy children. And so slow is a very important essential. Slow, first of all, gets the brain's attention. So when we really slow down, there is the space to notice and feel. You'll see I always come back to feeling and the feeling of self, and I know that you're a social worker, so I trust that you really you know, know how important that is. And, and what happens is fast we can only do what we already know. And the brain creates patterns very quickly. So it's a child that has great limitations, if they're asked to do anything fast, 
they have their brain, they have no choice but to default into what they've been doing up until that point. And including their limitations, their distortions, their tantrums, their anxiety attacks, whatever is going on with them, that's what will kick in. So slow, just slowing down, whether you're trying to teach your child to read or whether you're trying to get them to learn to do something, slowing down really gently and patiently, and again, that helps the child get the child's attention to what's going on and especially to themselves, very powerful. The next essential is variation, and variation is basically introducing differences on purpose. So, for instance, when I work with musicians and, you know, some world-class musicians that sometimes have pain and they can't play and all that stuff, one of the things that I get them to do is I get them to play what they already know to play better than most people in this universe, but to play it badly, to play it lying on their back, to play it uh, in, uh, backwards, to skip every second note, to make mistakes. And very often, you know, they do this for three or four minutes, they go back to playing, and especially if they move about a little bit as they do it, the pain is gone. Because, and people say, what's between, you know, playing badly and, and, and the pain being gone? Well, the, the, the playing badly requires moving a little differently, listening a little differently, intending differently. You don't try to succeed all the time. And the brain has new information. Same thing with a kid. Your kid can't do something. Let's, let's say recognize letters or, or understand math. Don't try to make them it correctly. Play around it. Make them make the shapes of their letters with their body. Have them catch mistakes in you. You say, oh, two and two is 17. So are you kind of, what you're doing is you're taking them away from kind of the routinized, you get into this routinized way of, of behaving, and you have to step away from it. You have to walk. It's sort of like walking when you're not doing a job well or you need to take a vacation and then come back to it and you have a lot of new information, a lot of new input to bring to the job and you, you'll do it better or you'll be able to do it better. Is it kind of that kind of a premise? Absolutely, except, you know, taking vacation sometimes is a little hard, but pulling back from trying to perform. You see play, playfulness. You see it in all mammals when they're little. You, children that are not playful are not well. And their brain they're not, is not going to grow correctly, and they're not going to be very intelligent. So play is a form of variation. You did it like this and it like that, and you try it from here, and you do it from there, and it, you, you drop the ball, and you pick up the ball, and you throw it this way, and you throw it that way. That's the only way the brain can really learn, hone in, sort of refine, refine, refine until it figures it out, right? The mistake, you see, and healthy children, that's how they learn. Healthy children muck about for years. You know, they roll and then they go up and they go down and they do this. If you watch a healthy one-and-a-half, two, two-and-a-half, three-year-old child play and you just videotape them and count the number of different little movements and different little ways in which they just do something, you'll be stunned. But you know, it kind of goes against what's happening today, which is unfortunate because a lot of these kids are put in situations where a lot of their play is now routinized and structured and specific sports, and, and that's really, according to you, is not a good thing, or it's not. Going it's, a to... it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. I mean, it, these kids still do okay to some extent because the brain is so ingenious, but it's really taking this enormous potential. And because it's so huge, it still works. But you kill off a lot of what could have been there. And, but, and the kids that are healthy, even when you routinize, put routine on them, they sort of do variations within the routine. They break the routine. They daydream. You know, they, 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 they're, they're creative managed. about it. They know how to get around it. If they get around it or they'll die. I mean, they can't live. I mean, we have to have variations. We have to. If you analyze movement, just Walking forward, the steps of you, me, anybody, you'll see that every step is done a bit differently than the step before. Variability is one of the core principles of a, a successful, healthy, living biological system. So one of the things that you want to do is with a child that has special needs, their ability to generate variations is reduced enormously. If you look at a child with autism on, on the autism spectrum, you will see that one of the typical things about and how this condition is diagnosed is that they are really compulsive and have a very narrow set of be actions, behaviors, and movement. 
And that is a manifestation of the disorder. So variations is very, very powerful, and I want to throw a couple more, and the the people who have to change how they feel and how they act are the adults around the child. So basically the adult has to go through the essentials as they go, as they provide them for their child. And the next one is subtlety. That's a reduction of effort, reduction of force. So when a kid cannot do something, movement or something even academic, cognitive, but let's just talk about the movement right now. We and we only have a couple more minutes left, so let's... Okay, so I'll just say reduce the force, everything. You reduce the force, you increase the sensitivity of the, in the child's brain, and they can feel differences. And the and very, very important other one is flexible goals. A, the kids, when they progress, they just progress and they hit more, you know, of the goals one after the other. But again, putting the goal up front will inevitably push the adults around to try to fix the child, and then we start all the negative cycle. Well, we haven't been able to cover all of them today, but because uh, I, I, and I want to mention because I think it's important for listeners to know well they can where they can kids beyond limits where they can buy your book bookstores everywhere. But you also have a website, and uh, and and I think I failed yes. to mention in the beginning you've had a born in Israel and uh, have and, and trained by uh, Doctor Moshe Fettel. How, how do you pronounce? I, I trained my he, he was I was a clinical psychologist trained with Doctor Feldenkrais, and then I. I took his work and kept developing it, uh, and now it's Anat Baniel Method. Yeah. And my website is www.anat, A-N-A-T, Baniel, B-A-N-I-E-L, Method, M-E-T-H-O-D, dot com. I have tons of videos uh, through my website or on, on, on YouTube, the book Kids Beyond Limits. Uh, I just came out, you know, if, uh, three or so months ago. And uh, parents uh, of children, special needs, and also parents to, to healthy children find this book very helpful. I'm getting a lot of wonderful feedback, which makes me happy. Well, it's been great having you on the show today. And, and uh, I mean, just uh, I've learned a lot just from the short time we've been able to talk. But Anat Benyal, she's a clinical psychologist, and her new book is Kids Beyond Limits, the Annette Benyal Method for Awakening the Brain and Transforming the Life of Your Child with Special Needs. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, great for having you again. You. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 